This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Hello. We have been forced to associate at this social gathering. I will now ask about your profession because I hope we will have something in common. Thank you for your initiative. However, I fear that you likely are not familiar with my profession. I am an actuary. You work with birds? No. What do actuaries do? Actuaries quantify risk, usually for insurance companies. Quantify? That sounds like math. Yes, we specialize in probability and the time value of money. Those words scare me. Math scares me. I hate math. I am sorry. Math was always my least favorite class. I thought it was pointless, and my teachers were all idiots. I am sorry you had a bad experience. I cannot understand why anyone would want to do math all day. Well, we do not add and subtract numbers all day, if that is what you mean. We have computers for that. Our job is to use quantitative skills to analyze problems in order to recognize and numerically represent various types of risk. I hate math. Yes, we have established that. If I say two numbers, can you add them together in your head? Well, I am not really. 5,738 and 6,264? What is the answer? I do not know. I thought you were good at math. I am, but... 8,379 plus 1436.4. Let me try to explain. I use quantitative skills, but... Yes, yes. I am disappointed that you failed my quiz. Do you want me to explain what I do? No, it sounds complicated and I have a short attention span. Tell me, how do you become an actuary? You have to have a bachelor's degree, usually in mathematics or actuarial science. So you are an actuarial scientist? We do not call ourselves that. Do you have a white lab coat? No. You should get one. What else must be done to become an actuarial? Actuary, not actuarial. Whatever. Same thing. It is not. One is a noun. The other is an adjective. I do not care. I know. Tell me how you become an actuarial. We have to take a series of very intensive exams. What kind of exams? Mostly multiple choice math questions. I like multiple choice tests. They are easy. Usually I would agree with you, but these are really quite difficult. How hard could they be? I thought you were good at math. I am, but no matter how naturally talented you are, you still need to spend literally hundreds of hours studying for each exam. And yet you still cannot do 5,738 plus 6,264? I am an actuary, not a calculator. Alright, so welcome everybody. Thanks for being here. as, as you mentioned, my name is Brian Bowman, so I'm a consultant with Milliman Financial Risk Management. And everyone's here because you want to know what's an actuary. I'm sure you've heard of it. If you spend any time online, you've, said, you've read some uh, top job survey, and actuary always seems to be up there. So you're probably wondering, what is this? So I'm here to give you a crash course. And today, you won't know everything, but it's a very quick sort of A to Z. But I think it'll get you started, and hopefully, if you're interested, uh, you can reach out to me or to some of the resources I'll give you and, and learn a little bit more about the, uh, about the profession and see if it's right for you. So quick background on me. Uh, I actually attended Moraine Valley. It was the first uh, community college I attended right out, of, right out of high school. I grew up in the south suburbs here. And, you know, college just wasn't for me. Uh, I don't know if there's any parents here. Hopefully not. But, uh, you know, I was, I was 18. It just wasn't for me. So I tried it out. And then I decided to move on to some other things. I started a business. I sold the business. And I actually, after selling the business, I wanted to pursue a a passion of mine in professional golf. So I played on the mini tours for five years. I don't know if you know what that is. Uh, Some of you are probably familiar with AAA baseball. It's kind of the same thing, 
Uh, it's analogous to that in golf. And I did that for about five years, and then there was kind of a point where I knew I needed to make a decision. I either was going to pursue this as a career, or I was going to move on to something else. And I didn't have a degree. And I'll tell you right now, my first bit of advice, I know a lot of you are here getting uh, probably, you know, your first two years of general eds out of the way, and you're probably going to transfer on to a four-year university. Uh, finish the process now, okay? It, as gratifying as it was to go back, because I had to make a decision. I had to get a degree. So I went to, you know, the University of Illinois. It was an amazing program, an amazing experience, and it was gratifying to get through it and, and to sort of overcome an obstacle. But I'll tell you, it would have been so much easier if I would have just finished at your age and then maybe taken a break. And again, parents, I, I don't want to encourage students to, to not pursue a career early on, but maybe you're not ready. Get the degree. If you want to explore some other options, go ahead. And let's say you get a degree in something that's not you know, quantitative, like math or finance or economics, you can always go get a master's degree. Again, University of Illinois has an amazing uh, master's program in actuarial science. So you always have options, but I'd encourage you to just get it done now, uh, your four-year degree at least. So anyway, I went there uh, from, from here. So it wasn't that long ago that I was actually in your shoes, even though I'm considerably older than most of the people in this room. Uh, I was a student not, not that long ago. I got an internship at Milliman FRM. Loved it, and I kind of made a decision at that point. That's where I wanted to work. So now I'm a consultant with the with the company, and uh, it's been it's been awesome. I mean, I, I would encourage you to check out Milliman if if you if you take this path and, and end up looking for a job. All right. So what's all the hype about? Like I said, you know, the Wall Street Journal and PayScale CareerCast is really one of the top ones. They always rank actuarial science top job, top job. And the and the reason they do this, they have these different factors, and it's usually stress level compensation, long-term outlook, and overall job satisfaction. So what is it about this job that all of these companies are sort of agreeing that, that this is a great profession to get into? So I'll start with a, a definition. You know, what is an actuary? And I like to think of an actuary as a, as a risk manager that uses analytical and business skills to quantify the impact of future events and make business decisions the what, the huh, the who, what. All right. So I think the best way to define what an actuary is is some examples, okay? So I have two examples to show you. The first is how we calculate an auto insurance premium. And then another one is an example actually from my job. Uh, this is a project. I, had, I was a project lead on this. It was a CFO run for a top insurance company, uh, one of our clients. So let's start with this first example, the calculation of an auto insurance premium. So my first question is, you know, why are teenagers so expensive, right? Let's take, uh, let's take you, for example, okay? I don't have to be an actuary, and no one in this room has to be an actuary, to know it's more expensive to insure your auto insurance policy, right, than it is to insure, let's say, yours. But how much more? Because that, that's a qualitative decision. It's more expensive. Well, we can't make real business decisions on that, because we need to sort of maximize profit. So... What factors do you think go into determining that this young man here is more expensive to insure than this seasoned man here? Any, any ideas? Just kind of blurt them out. Experience driving. Absolutely. That, I mean, that, that, that factors right into sort of the number one reason, which anyone think. What's the number one thing that goes into factoring these insurance premiums? Age, yes, age, age, age. We can tell so much about people's driving habits with their age. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not singling you out, but you probably, you know, you've got the radio on and you're texting while you're driving and you get your buddy in the back slapping you around. It's just, it's a mess, you know. And this young man, uh, this, he, he, he's just more experienced. You know, he's, he's been around, he has more years driving, but also even if, even if he, they had driven the same amount of time, because those are really two separate categories, age and time spent driving, he probably still just is probably a little more experienced in life in general. He knows accidents can happen, that kind of stuff. And I'm not giving you a lecture. I'm just, I'm just letting you know how it works. Uh, any other ones anyone can think of? No, is it too early? Too early? I'll throw some out there. Maybe uh, geographic location, where you drive. Uh, anything else? Gender. That's right. That's right. Males are more expensive to insure. Again, because males are just dumb and they do dumb things. Anything else? 
All right, so I think we got like four. Uh, so you may be surprised. There's seven, about 17 major categories that go into figuring out how much your insurance premium is going to be. And a lot of these, you know, you probably would have thought of. You know, marital status, driving history, education, maybe not, but we find that more people with higher education tend to be safer drivers. And this is all sort of statistics. We're not singling out one person. I'm not saying that because you have a PhD, you're a safer driver than this guy who doesn't have a high school diploma. We're looking in aggregate, and that's always what an actuary is doing. We're, an underwriter would look at you in particular. An actuary is looking at the overall picture because we want to get sort of an average. And when we look at averages, you know, I can't predict the future on what's going to happen to you tomorrow, but when I look at averages, when I, have, when I aggregate everyone, 100,000, 200,000, a million people who all kind of fall into the same category, the behaviors are actually quite predictable, and that's sort of what actuaries use. Uh, so one that may stick out, which a lot of people, it's actually kind of controversial, is this here, credit rating. This will be my second bit of advice. Protect your credit rating. You know, you think, uh, you, may, you may not even know what credit rating is. Some of you may. Uh, but your credit rating not only will impact sort of, you know, the interest rate you're going to get on a home mortgage and on your car loan, it's also going to interest, it's also going to affect how much they charge you for insurance. This is a kind of controversial one, like I said. In a lot of states, they're trying to get this banned because they feel it's discriminatory. But again, the research shows a higher credit rating translates into better driving skills. So uh, while it may be controversial, it is being factored into everyone's insurance policy, auto insurance policy right now. Okay, so we have all this data. We, we, we have massive, uh, we, we have you know, spreadsheets and databases with all this data. So we look at previous information and we give it some credibility. You know, it's, we, we find that 18-year-olds under a certain, you know, uh, males in a certain geographic location who drive a certain cost of car, um, certain amount of miles, you know, we have this sort of picture, an aggregate picture, and we find that 10% of them get into fender benders, okay? That was sort of the, the, the past. Now we give it credibility. Does that mean that the next person we insure, the next, you know, next year, we can expect roughly 10%? Because things may have changed. Maybe... Um, you know, I don't know, maybe cars, have, uh, have alert systems have, have been more sophisticated, so they're less likely to get into these fender benders or whatever. I mean, that's, that's sort of what an x-ray has to do. It's a lot of problem solving. It's a lot of analysis. And some of it, you know, we do have data that tells us what it is, sort of what the right answer is. But in other times, we just kind of have to be aware of sort of current events, technology, what's, what's happening. Uh, so we take that data, we, we give it some credibility. How credible is it for the next sort of uh, incident? Then we, once we have all this data, we model it. What that means is we create all these random scenarios, good scenarios, bad scenarios, and there's cash flows in all these scenarios. So there's, you know, imagine one random scenario where we have, we do have that 10% of fender benders. There's another scenario where, you know, there's more accidents or there's, you know, lapses in coverage or all these random, random scenarios. And then we take it and we TV all these... All these costs along the way, we PV it all back to the present. And I'll explain this a little more uh, in the CFO run. But this is generally what actuaries will do. They look at data, they model it into the future, and then they PV it all back. Because they want to, again, quantify with averages how much more expensive are you versus you. Okay? Now, you may be asking, I know I would, why do all the, why do all the data, all the number crunching, right? Uh, I'll charge you a thousand, and I'll charge you two hundred. Why not? That ought to cover it, right? Well, the problem is you have to remain competitive because this is still a business. If this was a purely technical exercise, sure, we can we can definitely cover the cost. But at the end of the day, there's a there's there's a there's a CEO who has to make a decision, and that's where the actuary sort of is unique from other business professionals. They have to have all those technical skills to be able to do all that analysis and deal with tons and tons of data and then to be able to communicate it to the decision makers, the guys who are really going to say, you know, this is the market we want to go after and this is what we're going to charge. Because if I go ahead and say $1,000 for you, at, I, I work at Progressive, let's say, well, Allstate's going to say, wait, they'll have smarter actuaries than me and they'll go, wait, we don't need to charge 1000 for this guy. 300 for this category will be fine and we'll still recover our costs. So even though as an, as an actuary at Progressive, yeah, I, I won't cost you any money, I'm going to lose you a lot because people are going to go to Allstate and get the insurance over there. So that's kind of a, a good example of 
how actuaries have to blend sort of the technical side with the business side because we have to be very precise and then be able to communicate this to the bosses. And very often, we will end up being the bosses. I mean, you look at Liberty Mutual, Allstate. Uh, most recently, I believe, uh, well, certainly at Milliman, actuaries are the CEOs. They are the presidents. They're the guys making the big, big, big money, okay? So another example that I wanted to give you is these, are these CFO runs. Now, this is actually a project, like I mentioned, I was, uh, I was the project lead on this. And we were given a task by probably the number one, the largest insurance company in America, certainly, probably in the world, to calculate some reserves. Now, what are reserves? Reserves are capital requirements that states have on insurance companies to make sure they don't go insolvent. What does that mean? If business starts going really bad, the insurance companies have an obligation to pay the claims that you submit as the policyholders. So these reserves, you know, this money just sits. It really just sits in, a, in an in account, basically. Uh, now, what does that mean? They can't earn interest on that. They can't invest that for new technology, new, new, new products. There's no innovation going on with that money. It just sits there. So you would think, you know, if you were the CEO or CFO of a company, you would want these reserves to be as small as possible. And the reason they wanted to calculate the reserves, the CFO was considering mergers that he wants to do. So within the company, you know, let's say he wants to take company A and merge it with company B. He goes to me or to us. He goes, what are the reserves for this? All right, I don't like those. What if we take company A, sell company B, and merge with company C? What are, the, what are they then? So he presented us 16 different scenarios that he wanted to do this analysis for him, okay? Now, where it gets complicated are the technical, technological limitations. So as advanced as our computing power is, we actually have a very difficult time doing this stochastic on stochastic modeling, which I'll explain, for a large book of business like this insurance company. Because they're, the block of business has 2 million policies, okay? And there's tons and tons of data on these, on these policies. And the way stochastic on stochastic modeling works, um, I, I put this together, I'm not very artistic, but uh, maybe, maybe I'll draw it out. I think it'd be easier. So we have, we have present day, uh, so this is the present. I don't know if it's better if I do this. Okay. Can everyone see this? Yeah? Okay. So we have the present, right? Now we take... So the first... Uh, sorry, our first issue was what are we going to do with all these 2 million policies? So we spent about three months designing the system called dynamic super compression. We were able to take 2 million policies, compress them down to 35, okay? That's pretty remarkable. And what's even more remarkable is the 35 policies maintain 95% of the characteristics of the 2 million. That's, that's pretty remarkable. It was actually uh, groundbreaking stuff. And it's now being, that methodology is being used by a lot of other, other consulting firms. So we called this uh, DFC, this dynamic super compression. So we took now, now the technological limits are no longer there, right? Because now we can, we can manipulate 35 policies versus 2 million. So what we do is the stochastic on stochastic. Stochastic is like a fancy word for random, okay? We take 35 policies, and now we're going to do, remember the scenarios I told you about? So we're going to have 1,000 random scenarios. These are randomly generated. The computer generates this. I'm sure some of you have heard of random number generators. That technology is kind of what's, what under, uh, is underlying this. It's just random scenarios. All kinds of different things are happening. People are dying. People are living longer. Um, uh, people are, you know, their uh, markets are going up. Markets are going down. Interest rates are going up. We have another, in one scenario, maybe we have another 2008 crisis, okay? At each one of these 1,000 scenarios, there's 120 time steps, okay? That's 30 years, four quarters each year. At each one of these quarters, there's another 1,000 scenarios, okay? So you can imagine the massive amount of computing power it takes. And what do we do? And this is, there's, these 120 time steps are in each one of these thousand scenarios. So it's stochastic on, sto oh, actually, stochastic here on a stochastic process. That's what that means. So random on random, basically. Now what do we do? We take all of these cash flows, same thing as the insurance example, and we PV it all back to the present. PV means present value. These, you know, some cash flow that happened 30 years, uh, 30 years in the future, what is it worth to us today? And then we can then calculate the reserves, okay? So, 
Again, we have this number. That's great. I'm great that you guys developed this DSC process and you have this number and you know, kind of good for you. Again, now it's up to the actuary to sort of have the, the, the technical knowledge to develop something like this, but now go to the CFO and present it. And when I mean present, I don't mean you know, sort of send an email. I'm talking about a room like this with the board members of the I mean, the board members of one of the largest insurance companies in the world, okay? And you're going to present these findings. And these are not people who, you know, sort of take what you say at, uh, you know, just they, they, they just believe whatever you tell them. Anything you present right away, they go, wait, that doesn't look right. Because these guys are all about gut feel. They maybe dropped the technical side a long time ago, but they will call you out immediately. Like, that doesn't look right. And then they start questioning your process. And on the fly, you'll have to decide... You know, how, you'll, you'll have to defend your process. You know, we, we have this innovative, groundbreaking technology, and they've never heard of it. So already they're like, wait, how do we know this guy is telling the truth? How do we know this works? So on the fly, amongst me and two other consultants, we'll have to come up with, okay, what is it? And how do we answer this question? So there's a little bit of pressure there, and uh, it's kind of, again, what makes actuaries unique, where you have to have the technical skills, but also the business acumen to be able to convey those ideas. All right, so that was two examples, but typically where do actuaries work? About 90% of actuaries work in very traditional fields, and those traditional fields can be split up into insurance and consulting. Insurance, most of you know of, life, health, property, casualty, pension. So, you know, life insurance plans, this is your health, or like Obamacare, you know, you've all heard of that. And so this was, this was a big deal. Uh, it still is. And, you know, it's interesting, these because it was so complicated, they needed to go to consultants to help them understand these problems. Property and casualty would be the auto insurance example, home insurance. Pensions, you know, I'm sure you've heard of a pension. You work for a company a long time. These are going away, but pensions, uh, you work for a long time for a company, let's say 30 years, then they'll pay you uh, X amount of dollars uh, after retirement. So, so anyway, this is sort of the traditional route that most people will take as actuaries. Uh, kind of high level, the difference between insurance and consulting when you're starting out, you know, when you're making that decision. Insurance, the hours are a little more predictable. It's a little more of a nine to five job, a lot of time to study. Uh, you have good rotation programs. So let's say for life insurance, you know, there's universal life and term and whole life and group insurance, all kinds of stuff. You'll do a rotation program. So at the end of two years, you'll really have a good idea of how this life insurance company runs. Contrast that to consulting, it's, it's a different beast. It really is. Uh, initially, you know, you don't know anything, so they're, they're, they'll take it easy on you. But eventually, you know, the work, uh, it's, it's way more involved, I, I think. Uh, I'm a little biased. I am in consulting. Um, you're, you're essentially solving the problems that these guys are having a hard time solving or simply just don't have the time, right? So it's stuff that they look at and they're like, yeah, this is probably going to take too long or it's too hard. Let's have these guys do it for us. So you can imagine uh, it's pretty challenging on the consulting side, but then extremely rewarding uh, when you present these numbers to a CFO and he goes, okay, I like it, thank you. And he goes and makes a $2 billion decision based on what you presented to him. So um, in consulting, in addition to insurance, there's this thing called enterprise risk management. This is a very niche field, so you, know, you don't need to really know too much about this. I, I would suggest you sort of learn the traditional stuff, and then you'll come across this ERM. Uh, enterprise risk management is understanding, helping companies manage their, their risks. There's operational risks, financial risks, uh, um, systemic risks, systematic risks. So it applies to everyone. I mean, this, this campus is a business, right? They have risks. It's quite possible they could hire an enterprise risk management actuary to help them manage those risks. Uh, and they would typically do that through consulting, right? They're not going to, there isn't a, a, an insurance company that specializes in that. Again, you can find consultants in finance and in government. Um, yeah, I mean, the United States has a, has a chief actuary who handles, you know, all of the healthcare um, regulations and stuff. 10% non-traditional. Uh, this can be anything. I just put some examples here. Supply chain management, you know, Understanding, you know, when you, companies, a FedEx may have, a, may have an actuary to understand how best to get their, get product out there, packaging, understanding the, the consequences. You know, I'm sure you've heard they say 
shaving you know, these two corners off of this box saved us $2 million a year. Probably an actuary or someone with similar skills was the one who came up with that number. Uh, private equity firms, mergers and acquisitions, we're currently going through this now ourselves actually in consulting, uh, which I know this is non-traditional, but this work for us is even non-traditional. Private equity firms, they're investors. They'll go and they'll buy a company, take it, build it up bigger, and sell it. Well, they'll hire an actuary to help them understand how big can they build this and what is it going to be worth, particularly if what they're buying is an insurance company, right? Who else to evaluate that than an actuary? Uh, so, yeah, industry, government, and academia. We're trying to train, you know, the new generation of actuaries. So at University of Illinois, we have four former actuaries uh, on staff who have got combined, I think, you know, 85 years of experience. So if you're looking to actually major in actuarial science, uh, definitely consider the University of Illinois. It's local, it's going to be affordable, and you're going to be hard-pressed to find a, a better actuarial program. So, uh, you know, I kind of give you some examples of what an actuary does, where they work. So why become an actuary? First, uh, it's intellectually challenging. Now, if I say it's intellectually challenging and you go, ah, intellectually challenging, don't be an actuary. Because you're going to work with literally some of the smartest people you have ever met. Okay? I mean, they are smart, smart, smart. I'm talking like rocket scientists smart. Um, it's, it's very challenging. It's very uh, like stimulating environment. You there isn't a day where you walk in and you feel like you, you know, you, you got this. You, you've, you've got it covered. You know how to do your job. It's always a new challenge. Um, you're solving very complicated problems. Like I said, particularly in finance, I mean in consulting rather, you know, these are the problems that the insurance companies, you know, either can't or just don't have the time to solve. So these are very complicated. Uh, an employer-supported exam pro process. I will talk a little bit more about the exam process in a minute, but just know that, you know, you're getting paid to move through the ranks as an actuary. You know, you start as a student and you have to pass a series of exams. You know, the little video kind of touched on that. They will pay for you to do this. Okay, now your initial exams are, I don't know, $300 each. Once you get to the FSA level exams, we're talking $1,000, $2,000 each, okay? Exam materials, $1,000 per sitting. I mean, just, just the materials you need to study. It's a very intensive process and to have that employer support is hugely beneficial. Plus, they give you raises as you pass exams, okay? And they're not, we're not talking, you know, $500 raises. These are, these are pretty big raises that you get. So, you know, while your other peers, they may be going to medical school or law school, and they'll come out, you know, four to 12 years later making $150,000 a year, they're also coming out with about $150,000 in debt, okay? And debt is no good. You're probably, you know, probably doesn't mean much to you now, but trust me, debt is just no good. So you're getting... You're basically getting a graduate degree, right? Because you're, you're studying, but you're working at the same time. So you're making money, you're learning, and someone else is paying for it. I mean, what else do you want, right? Uh, it's a fairly recession-proof career. Think about it. We quantify risk. We, we, we tell you how risky something is, and we tell you how much it's going to cost you. So in good times, everybody's hiring, right? Times are good. Let's spend some money. Let's hire talent. Times are bad. Who are you going to want working for you? You're going to want people who understand how bad things are and how bad they might get and who can help you make business decisions based on uncertain circumstances. And finally, it's highly paid. I'm sure that is the one thing that everyone who's looked and seen some job ranking, it's like, wait, I can make how much money? So how much are we talking exactly, right? So here's a matrix from uh, my friends at Ezra Penland. And this is what they do. They do surveys of uh, actuarial salaries, and then they go ahead and place people. They're, they're recruiters, okay? So this is a survey they've come up with, and I can vouch for these numbers. I can tell you these are about right. Now, these are the 10th and 90th percentile. So what does that mean? This is something you'll, uh, you'll learn in your first, uh, probably your first probabilities course or statistics course. So essentially, uh, what I was saying before, we take a bunch of data points, right? Uh, so you're one data point. So you are right here, let's say, okay? Now, I can't, I don't know what the next data point's gonna be. I don't, I don't, I don't have an average. I have no idea what, what to expect. But what we find is, and you'll, you'll learn about this uh, in your probability courses down the road, you'll learn something about the central limit theorem. And, and essentially what happens is the more data points we get, 
we find that it starts to actually form uh, a, a, dis a predictable distribution. So we'll find it'll start, the more data points we get, it'll start forming this thing called the bell curve, okay? And it's a normal distribution. And it's really interesting. I mean, you know, again, if this is something that you're like, what? Who cares? Probably don't want to be an actuary, okay? This is like, this is stuff that gets us really excited. Uh, we see this in nature. We see it everywhere, where the more data we get, the more predictable the future outcome is. And what this here is, if you had to guess, if this was all of my data points, what would you, if you just guessed, okay, so, right? So this is less likely, more likely, right? Because this is all these data points I'm collecting, and now this is sort of the most likely, and then again, less likely, less likely. If you had to guess, what do you think this point here represents? If you just, anyone want to take a stab at it? The 50th percentile, right? It's the average. It's, it's sort of, it's like the, it's the, it's the median, right? So we kind of expect the next data point to come from somewhere in here, kind of the, the heavy part of the, of this curve. So, sorry, kind of went off on a tangent, but, you know, I'm an actuary. I can't, I can't help it. Uh, so what, what does this mean? Right here. Uh, let's take, for example, zero to one year's experience, right? Because you guys are going to be starting out. And I'm going to encourage you to pass two exams before you start your full-time job. So you can expect somewhere between fifty-five dollars and $67,000 as a starting salary. So this is the 10th and 90th percentile. So what do we do? This is the 10th. This is the 90th. We cut off the rest here. And that's the range that they've given us, right? Because we don't want to put someone who's in the 99th percentile because there's some, you know, genius guy who was a PhD, had two exams, no experience, but they paid him $90,000. But we don't want to include that in our survey. It's not representative. So what can you expect? You expect to start at about 60 to 60, well, it says 55 to 67. I went to school with a whole bunch of entry-level actuaries. None of them started less than 60, okay? So let's kind of go forward. Let's say you have five years experience. You pass all of your exams. So you're now in five years to pass all your exams if you pass two of them before you start. It's completely reasonable. So now you're, what, 22, you graduate. You're 27. Let's say you, you, you decide you don't want to play professional golf and you go straight into, uh, into, into your career. So you can expect to be somewhere between about 105 and 165,000 a year, okay? So that's pretty well paying. Like I said, you're going to have buddies who are still going to be in medical school um, building about that much in debt and you're already earning it. And the best part, like I said, someone's paying you to get all that knowledge to get to that point. And then, you know, just you look over here and it, it can get pretty crazy. This 20 plus years experience as an FSA, you're almost at half a million dollars. Now, granted, this includes CFOs, CEOs, so it's not probably the most representative, but uh, if you're that ambitious, then you can certainly fall into that category one day. So how do you become an actuary? Advice I can give you now. Uh, college courses are so important, okay? That's going to set the foundation. If you can take math courses, take them. Calculus. Anything, uh, right now you're kind of limited with, you know, probably I think you maybe can get to what, like differential equations or something right now? Okay. Uh, when you go to four-year university, keep an intense uh, math um, uh, curriculum in your, in your schedule. Finance, economics, business. This is a multidisciplinary field, okay? Probably the most multidisciplinary. You can't just be the technical guy. And you can't just be the good communicator. It just doesn't work that way. You have to have it all, okay? Take as many of these courses as you can. If you go to a university that has an actuarial program, consider that. I'm not saying actually by default be an, be an actual science major. Because in a lot of ways, I mean, your, your degree, you've kind of said, I'm going to be an actuary. Now, I'm not saying you can't do something else. But you have sort of limited yourself in, in one sense. So consider being an, an actual science major if it's offered, but it's not sort of by default that you have to do that. You can build a very good curriculum on your own by just taking these courses. And communication courses. Again, you're going to have to communicate these ideas. Even if you're not a consultant, internally you may have a great idea. You're going to have to pitch it and sell it to the people you work with. Exams are absolutely the most important part of becoming an actuary. It is like, it's like you will meet an actuary and unless they are, you know, they have 15 years experience, the first thing they're going to ask, oh, so where are you at in the exam process? The first thing they'll ask, okay? 
when you go to apply for a job, on a resume, usually you put your degree first, right? Like, I don't know if you've seen resumes. You put where you attended school. On an actuarial resume, you put how many exams you've passed. It is it's like your calling card in this business, okay? Uh, it's not unusual for people to have two exams passed when they graduate. It used to be you can get a job with no exams and just a lot of ambition. Uh, that's, that's changed a little bit. In fact, one of my colleagues who does recruiting at the University of Illinois said he is not going to consider interns who have less than two exams passed. I mean, that's how competitive it's gotten. So I'd encourage you all to start researching the exam process and consider taking it. Because having failed an exam is better than having never taken one when you're applying for internships. Because it shows them you know the process and you're, you're genuinely interest, interested in trying to, to become an actuary. Uh, and that leads me to my next point. Build, uh, build experience through internships. A lot of people, they think, oh, I'm just a freshman. No one's going to hire me. Don't, don't sort of knock yourself out already. Let, let them make that decision, okay? Get out there, show your enthusiasm, and try to see if you can get some experience. We certainly, at Milliman, we hired, we hired freshmen. Absolutely we did. Um, it's, it is rare. I'm not going to say it happens all the time, but if you have enough ambition and you show genuine interest, you can absolutely get an internship. And again, if you have a solid resume with experience and some exams, you will have no problem getting a job. Uh, as an actuary. You don't have to have a 4.0. You don't have to be top of your class. Just those two things, guaranteed you'll get one. And if you don't, give me a call and, and I could probably help you out and, and try to find you something at Milliman, So, And it also allows you to test out different areas. You know, you saw how many options there were where you can work. You know, insurance, consulting, all those other things. If you start early, you know, you could do property and casualty one year and then the next year try life insurance. And the next year maybe do find a small enterprise risk management firm and work for them. So I think that's, that's, uh, that's key. Exams, internships, college courses, okay? So the exam process. You've heard me talk about exams. You saw that video about how, you know, how horrible it is. You have to study so much. Um, yeah, I won't sugarcoat it. It's, it's, it's a very intense process. On average, you can expect to study 100 hours for every hour of exam time, okay? Exams are about three to three and a half hours. So it's not unusual to start studying four months before your exam. I have friends who are two months away from their exam and they feel pressed for time, okay? So it's not quite like cramming for a final. Everyone studies differently, but generally, unless you have a background in these, in these topics, you'll want to start early. You can take them in any order. However, it is recommended you kind of follow this, this uh, schedule because they do get harder. Probability is the basis of everything in actuarial science, so generally it's the first exam. You don't take much probability work, I think, in, in, at this level. It will be immediately available at a, at a university where you can take some probability courses. And you'll learn you know, basic probability distributions. I won't go into too much detail. You, know, you can definitely research this. Financial mathematics, you heard me mention PVing, cash flows back. That's where you learn that stuff. You learn uh, present value, time value of money, interest rates, how all that works. MFE, Models for Financial Economics. You learn, you know, most of you have heard about derivatives probably, options. Okay, uh, you learn how options work and how they're priced. You learn this thing called the Black-Scholes equation. That's how we price options. You learn about these different characteristics of options called the Greeks. Very interesting. If you have an interest in finance or financial engineering, if you don't know what that is, research it. It's very inter interesting. You'll love this exam. This is a very, very interesting one. Then on the other side of the coin, there's MLC. This one is just, it's just morbid. It's, it's probability of dying and probability of living. I mean, it, it, is, it is three and a half hours of testing you on life and death. It, it's, a, it's a tough one. But you get through it and you move on. And then this construction of actuarial models. Uh, some of the things I was talking about uh, with the data. Yes, the data, looking at it, the credibility of that data for the future. Those are the models that we build, and that's sort of a crash course, uh, not a crash course, it's a pretty intensive exam, but that exam will teach you about all those models and, and how, uh, how we use them in the profession. These things you earn through educational credit, so you actually don't have to take an exam for these as long as you take the right courses. This is something called a uh, module online. This is probably the easiest thing you'll have to do. Well, second easiest. This is a half-day seminar where you show up and it's kind of a formality where they say, congratulations, you're an ASA. So you're an ASA. Good for you. 
That's great. Now you want to become an FSA because there are only about 20,000 FSAs in the world. Okay? This is, and you know those really high pay scales, remember? It was like $2 bazillion. Yeah, those are all FSAs. FSAs make all the money. Uh, why? Because they're in high demand and there aren't many of them. Basic economics, right? Supply and demand. There aren't many of them. We're going to pay you a lot. You choose a path. I won't go into too much detail here, but you can see there's a combination of modules and exams. Remember modules? I said it was online. Well, that's, these blue ones are modules. These are exams. Uh, the ASA exams are very hard. These are very, very, very hard. Okay? Uh, but chances are, for example, if you decide you're going to be a life insurance actuary and then you're going to be, you're going to take the individual life and annuities track for your FSA, these topics on these exams are exactly what you're doing at work. So it'll be very relevant, whereas some of the other stuff may not, in the ASA, it's very general. This is very specifically geared towards your uh, area of, of interest or your career. So again, I think this may be available. Uh, this is certainly available online. I have some links, and you can knock yourself out with doing uh, your own research after uh, after this. So some general advice. Um, this again, this is I kind of put this up here. I gear it towards actuarial science, but honestly, this is general advice for any career you're going to choose. Okay. First, start building a network. Start. There's a lot of people in this room. Say hi to somebody new. Say hi to, you know, they look older than you. Find out what they do. Say hi, okay? Build a network. You've all heard the phrase, it's all about who you know. Yes, it's all about who you know. You know, there's people who submit 50 jobs a day online and they're, they're trying to, to, to get a job. I will tell you right now, the 50 job applications you submitted online are not worth one good contact at a company, okay? Because that's how jobs, that's how, that's how it works. You have to have relationships. And then when opportunities come up, someone who knows you is going to think of you. And at the same time, when opportunities come up for somebody else, you may be able to offer uh, something to them, okay? So start building a network. I, a specific network that you can sort of tap into even now as students is the Chicago Actuarial Association. It's in Chicago. Um, it's just a bunch of actuaries, yeah. They do some fun events. They do good baseball games. I coordinate a golf outing for them. It's a lot of fun. We love having students come out, and we also have pres presenters, uh, presidents of the Society of Actuaries comes out, new topics in the industry, so that's a wonderful resource. Again, I encourage you, go, get business cards, say hi, get out of your comfort zone, because the sooner you develop that skill, uh, the, the better off you're going to be. Learn how to program. This is a little more specific. Uh, computers are just becoming more and more uh, necessary in business today, and you know, you will be hard-pressed to find a business analyst job anywhere that doesn't use Excel. Now, Excel has this language called VBA behind it that makes Excel work. So when you click on things and you bold and you underline and all that, there's code that's telling it to do all that. Learn that code. That's a great place to start. It's a very easy language to learn. And I'm not saying you have to go into, like, very complex and sophisticated programs. Learn basic statements, if-else statements, loop logic. Understand how that works? immediately it'll make you a huge asset. And when employers see that, even for internships, my goodness, if I, if, I, if I was reviewing a resume and this person has, you know, interest in the field, has maybe failed an exam, that's fine, but then they put they know VBA, I'm going to use them all summer because I have all kinds of manual things that I have to do that I'm going to have them automate. So programming skills are huge, and that's in any industry. Become an effective communicator. Uh, yeah, I can't emphasize this enough. More and more, we don't need just technical people. We don't need, just need mathy people who can sit, crunch numbers, and push it off to the guy who's going to present it. We want you to present it. You know it better than anybody. And if you think about it, you want to move up in the ranks, you learn the technical side, right? It seems like there's a lot of math majors here, very quantitative minds. You learn that technical side, and then you step away from that. And then you'll be able to see the big picture. When... when somebody presents you a model, you'll kind of have an intuitive sense that it doesn't look right. So there's no one better, I think, to be a leader in, a, in an organization for, in an actuarial firm or an insurance company or actually any business, I think, firm than someone who understands the technical details but can effectively communicate this to others, okay? So you can take speech courses. Obviously, that's sort of the most um, obvious. 
Then there's this thing called Toastmasters. I encourage you to check it out. It's an awesome, awesome organization. You basically do this. You give you know, presentations. They're about seven-minute presentations, but you give presentations every week or every other week. And uh, it, it, they critique you. I know it sounds a little uh, kind of scary that they're going to critique you and tell you what you're doing right and wrong, but that's how you get better. So I encourage you to check that out. And next, start today. You know, don't waste any time. Uh, be an actuary.org. This is geared towards people who don't know much about the profession and are looking to sort of enter it. A lot of good introductory material. SOA.org. This is the Society of Actuaries. This is geared more towards the professionals, the, the people who are already working. However, there are still great resources for you to, to check out. And that is all I have in terms of prepared material. So do you have any questions for me? Okay, so I'm on my last preliminary. Um, one of the, so remember I mentioned, you know, one of the sort of things about the advantages between consulting and insurance. In insurance, you have a lot of time to study. In consulting, not so much. Uh, it's a little bit more of a challenge. So it's almost like another full-time job. I mean, I have, it's not unusual for me in a week to put in maybe 60 hours and then to try to fit in some study time can be a challenge. So yeah, so certainly some of my peers have gone through the exam process a lot quicker. Um, but yeah, I'm on my last exam. I'll be taking it in November. If I pass, um, then yeah, then I'll, I'll sort of finish up. I've, I've finished up my other requirements. So I would become, yeah, like I'd get my ASA credential at the end of the year, basically. So, any other questions? I, there's one back here. I, the microphone's Yeah. Uh, hi. I have a couple questions, actually. Yeah. Um, I'm, look, I'm studying to be a financial advisor, and it, it seems like it mimics the same type of situation as the actuary which I was wondering if should I keep going to be a financial advisor and just take the exams to be an actuary? And my second question is, um, is it better to work for a company or open your own consulting firm? Okay, that's, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of people uh, are kind of like you. They're, they're considering two avenues and they're thinking, well, do I sort of knock out the actuary thing and open up my options almost, right? I would say... To use actuarial science or the actuarial career as a stepping stone to anything else is probably not the best idea just because it's such an intense process, you know? Um, it's kind of like, I would, I would say go the other way. You know, if you, if you want to become a financial advisor, do that, explore that, and then if you realize, you know, I want to, I want to get more into the development of these products. Because as a financial advisor, you're going to work with people individually and you're going to come up with a plan that's best for them, uh, how to manage their, their retirement, uh, which benefits are well, good for them, which products they should be purchasing, that kind of stuff. You may find that you, know, you, you like that, you enjoy working with the people, but you really want to understand how these products are developed. Like how, you, know, you, you recommend some annuity to a, an annuity, a fixed annuity is a fixed number of payments for a certain amount of time. So you might recommend a 30-year annuity to a, to a retiree who's got, you know, $500,000. You'd say, what should I do with this? Well, let's say then you go, you know what, I, I like recommending it. I like working with the clients, but I really want to know how these products are structured. And I'd like to be the one who's more involved with the distribution of these products, not just with um, advising people on what to buy. Then I think actuarial science may be a good consideration. But I'll tell you, financial advisors, they, they do really, really well also. You know, I mean... You talk about starting a business. I don't know if you're more of an entrepreneurial type. If you are, maybe financial advisor is better because starting a consulting firm, an actuarial consulting firm, is extremely, extremely difficult. It, it, it happens, but these are people who have 20, 30 years experience because it's such a, it is so complicated and, um, you know, it doesn't have sort of that personal touch. You know, if you're, if you're good at business, you can, you know, you can start a financial advising firm five years out of college, right? You get five years experience, and then you start connecting with people. Uh, you know, it, you can do that almost, almost immediately in the big picture. For actuarial science, it'd be a lot tougher. I mean, so I, I think you're on the right path, but certainly explore actuarial science if you want to get more into the, the details and like the nitty gritty. You know, hope that answers your, uh, hope that answers your question. Anything else? Other questions. All right.
Going once, going twice. Faculty members, you're feeling good? Oh, back here. All right, cool. Thank you. I, uh, you were saying that if you get a job with a firm, that they will pay for your um, uh, test and the material. But for at least the first two tests, is there a way or is there a place where you could actually get tutored for these tests? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm sorry. What, what was your uh, your last your last point? Is there a place where you can get what? Tutored. Tutored. Oh, um, there are. So that's actually a really good question. Um, I don't think there's a place where they specifically offer like a um, what am I saying? A uh, an actual physical location where you can go. You know, there may be independent tutors out there. I wouldn't probably trust that too much. Uh, but certainly there are online e-courses, and that's actually what I use and a lot of my peers use. So, for example, coachingactuaries.com or the Infinite Actuary. These are places where you can go, you pay a fee, there's a student discount, so you will pay less, and you can go through a course, and it's, uh, it's online seminars, and they're pretty comprehensive. So I would say certainly for the first two exams, you could self-study, and in a lot of ways you self-study anyway. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of people did actuarial science as a major. They were finance majors and decided they want to be actuaries. They were history majors and decided they want to be actuaries. So a lot of it is a self-study process. Um, so yeah, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be at a disadvantage, I don't think, if you just went to one of these sites and got one of those programs. But uh, it, you, there's one other point you mentioned about cost, and I just want to bring this up. The first two exams, there's two discounts you can look into. First, if you're at a school, they may, they may pay for your first two exams, okay? That's something to look into. The other is, for minorities, the Society of Actuaries will pay for your first two exams. So also look into that if it's something that you're interested in, or if it applies. Good. Okay, other questions? How about a round of applause for Brian? Thank you. Thanks, guys. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, one other quick thank you. I should have mentioned at the intro, I want to thank Keith Nabb from the math department. He really put this series together, and I meant to thank him when we started, and I didn't. So thanks, Keith. And uh, next week, I think we're on to zombies, so take a look at our library schedules. We're continuing our one-book series. I uh, hope you'll come back. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.